First Peter chapter 4 this morning. We're pressing on in studying this letter to the church, reminding us that as followers of Jesus Christ, we will face hostility. But in that hostility, we can be steadied by grace. There were a few dozen believers that gathered on the periphery of a gay pride event a few towns away yesterday. There were some slight open doors in presenting the gospel to folks, including uh, a police officer that was there to be sure peace was maintained. And those believers, though there to share the good news of God's way is best, uh, endured some insult, some gestures that would be inappropriate to even describe here. But that's the reality that Peter is addressing. Oh, there may be a scope of opposition that is far more intense or severe, but certainly as Christians we should expect nothing less than than words of opposition, uh, looks of disdain, attitudes of uh, incredulity that we would actually believe some of the things we believe. Our text for today is really the summary of Peter's teaching on the pilgrim's suffering. He's talked about suffering in the previous chapters, slander that needs to be endured, opposition to be faced, and he'll mention it again in the final chapter to come. But here, in these few verses of our text this morning, this is the heart of the message of Pilgrim living in the face of hostility. Listen to God's word through the Holy Spirit, through Peter, to the church, beginning in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Heavenly Father, would you help us as we open our minds and our hearts to this text. May we understand things that may seem difficult. Ultimately, may our hearts know exactly how we can be obedient to your word to us this morning. 
We're grateful for your help as we encounter your word. We're grateful for your spirit that can guide us into this truth this morning and into lives of obedience this week. And so for all this help and for this word that's before us this morning, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our big idea comes out of Peter's big idea, the conclusion of verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. As a pilgrim, you must face hostility with confidence in God's will. Be confident. It's an interesting command to try to obey. Be confident. It's not just a simple action like we would instruct a family member, unload the dishwasher. But be confident is asking you to rein in the, the physiological response to pressure, to, to rein in nerves and emotions. It'd be like telling somebody about to step into a ball game or a music recital, hey, don't be nervous. Well, for those of you that have performed in front of people in a music recital or on a a ball field or a ball court, you know somebody telling you not to be nervous really has very little effect on your nerves. They're just there. It's almost as if it can't be helped. We feel that way at times when the Bible speaks of confidence. Peter says, yeah, I know there's all this hostility, but knowing God's will, just, just trust him and do right. And we step back and think, oh, okay, I'll try. It's just that here in this passage, there, there are some things Peter tells us so that we, we aren't left with just, well, I'll try to be confident. He says some things that actually can help us understand what it would look like to be confident in God's will while on this pilgrim journey and at times facing opposition on that journey. Some of you, because of the world's designation of this month of June as LBGTQ plus Pride Month, have already faced things in your workplace as this was announced this month. I heard from two people specifically. One of them even sent the company email so I could kind of see this is what we face. That's just one issue of our world's ideas that you will be bombarded with this week. It will oppose what you believe God has said about how to live life in this world. As a pilgrim, you must face this hostility with confidence in God's will. So like the athlete or like the musician, let's rein in our emotions and our nerves and our thoughts with the help of these verses so that we can hear that conclusion and say, yes, I can do that. With confidence in God's will, I will entrust to him my life and I'll just get busy doing good this week. So how do you face hostility with confidence? Five ways this morning that Peter lays out he says five things that will lead him to say, therefore, entrust your soul to God and do good. So what is his argument that leads us to that conclusion? Number one, don't be surprised by hostility. 
Peter wants you to be confident in God's will for your pilgrimage. So he starts by saying, don't be surprised by hostility. He says, first, it's not unusual. Verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It may be different than what a generation of Christians before in America had to put up with, but we still shouldn't think it's strange that the world loves darkness rather than light. That should not be something that catches us by surprise. Peter is not here diminishing the opposition. Quite the contrary. He calls it the fiery opposition, the fiery trial. So he's not saying, oh, quit your complaining, it's no big deal. In some cases, Americans need to hear that. In most places of the world, they do not need to hear it's no big deal, because it is. Their, their church building is in rubble now. Their lives are in chaos. They've buried loved ones for the sake of the faith. It is a big deal. Peter's point is, oh, it's not, no, stop all the fuss about opposition. No, his words are careful. Don't think that it's strange that they oppose you. Don't be caught by surprise. It is not unusual. He goes on to say, the element of surprise should be gone because we know the fiery trial is designed to test our faith. Beloved, he says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It becomes very personal now. It's one thing to talk about the persecuted church and think of it as somewhere over in the Far East. It's another thing when you went to work and you're just trying to be a good Christian, you want to be light, you want your life to be salt, and you're being bombarded by worldliness. You're being told that this is what it would look like to be inclusive, to be a person who embraces unity or tolerance. And it's hard because it's now you in the crucible of suffering. It's you being tested by the fiery trial. It will test your faith. By this I mean, it's not so much a test to see if you have faith. You do, clearly, Peter calls these people the beloved. He knows they're God's people. But he's reminding them that this opposition and this hostility is the proving of their faith. It's the showing of its strength. And at times, the purifying of it. Because what we see in that workplace environment is at times our fear is revealed. We don't like being outspoken. We, we don't want to be a lightning rod we want to be a city set on a hill, but with a low profile, like no two-story buildings allowed, right? There's a fine line there. We all understand we're not trying to provoke and incite conflict. He's going to get to that in the text. He's simply saying, 
Opposition will come and it will test your faith. Faith that is real, it's there, but it may need to be purified. We can see this back in chapter 1 when he writes of our inheritance kept in heaven and then in verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So let's take Peter's initial warning to heart. Don't be surprised by hostility. If you're surprised by it, that implies your confidence is shaken for a moment. It's Whoa, I didn't know this was going to happen. I thought my Christian life was supposed to be easier than this. So the surprise stands in contrast to the confidence. I know what I'm going to face. I remember Jesus' words in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Peter addressed that a few paragraphs ago. Now they're kind of annoyed at you that you don't join in with them, one of the gang. But because you are not of the world, Jesus says, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You may not have felt that in any piercing way in your lifetime. I am just suggesting with a, a non-prophet's glaze into the future, a glance into the future, that it's likely that you are going to face some kind of hostility or insult in your lifetime because of your faith. So don't be surprised by hostility. Number two, Peter would tell us, in contrast to surprise, find joy in hostility. Find the joy that emerges in the face of hostility. The text is clear. Don't be surprised. And if you eliminate a lot of those other phrases and just get to the next kind of main action, don't be surprised, verse 13, but rejoice. There's the contrast. Surprise, I can't believe this is happening. Why don't they accept me? Why don't they just hear me out? Why, why do those people that used to like me now insult me? No, rather than being surprised and letting all that uncertainty mount, come back to the pursuit of joy. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That's why we heard from Philippians chapter 3. Willing to walk away from anything that, that I could lean on, that could could feel like my source of confidence and recognize, no, I'm sharing in the suffering of Christ. Therein will be my joy. Find joy in the hostility. Verse 13 says that in that sharing of the suffering of Christ, we may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Rejoice and be glad. Those are the exact same words that Jesus heard, or Peter heard from Jesus when 
He sat on you know, the back row and listened to the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Surely that sermon was in Peter's mind as he addressed this letter to the pilgrim church suffering opposition. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's that element of don't be surprised and the finding of joy in hostility. So where do we find the joy in being insulted, in being minimized or ostracized? Where's the joy in this? Peter reminds us first that suffering leads to glory. Suffering leads to glory. He's saying rejoice in so much as you share in the sufferings of Christ. If you are suffering for Christ, remember there is joy here because glory awaits. Now this was true of Christ. We see that again back in chapter 1 when Peter wrote in verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. And what were they trying to figure out? Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So the Old Testament message was, someone is coming who will suffer first in God's plan and then will be glorified in God's plan. So Christ the anointed one would come and suffer to accomplish the will of God, our salvation, but he would be glorified. Suffering leads to glory. He suffered, Peter writes in chapter 2, to accomplish our salvation. He suffered for us, he says in chapter 3, the just for the unjust in order to bring us to God. So this suffering as Peter uses it to describe Jesus, is the good news of the gospel. Oh, the law says if you sin, you will die for that sin. You will be eternally judged in a state of perpetual torment and death. However, this is the good news. God has made a way for you to escape that punishment. But the only hope is that you hide yourself in Christ by faith. The Old Testament picture was come into the ark that was built that will carry you through the waters of judgment. Peter used that illustration in chapter 3. His point is you must be saved. And the way you are saved is by turning away from your sin that condemns you to Christ who saves you. He rescues you. So Christ suffered for our salvation, but then the text says he rose and ascended to the throne. His suffering and his subsequent glory. Suffering leads to glory. You have to have this clue in order for the text to make sense that how do I rejoice in persecution and opposition? 
That sounds like a, a twisted mentality to rejoice in pain. But it's possible when we are confident in God's will that our suffering, if it's the suffering that we share with Christ, because of Christ, it leads to glory. Verse 13 says that. You share Christ's suffering that you may rejoice when? When? When his glory is revealed. It leads to glory. Now look at verse 14, which is really a restatement of verse 13. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed again. Peter's hearkening back to that Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you, happy are you when men revile you, persecute you, say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. You're blessed, he says. And then he points to the reason. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's a fascinating title for the Holy Spirit of God. We're accustomed to Spirit of God, Holy Spirit, or the Spirit, but what of this spirit of glory? That, that, that's a new one for the New Testament listener. Peter here, I think, is using this unique title to support his point. Suffering leads to glory. And part of the blessing, part of the joy that we find in hostility, in being the pilgrim exiles is that we have received the Holy Spirit as a down payment, not only of our redemption, Ephesians 1 tells us, but also of the glory that awaits us. So much so that Peter says, this spirit that you have is the spirit of glory. You have a foretaste of what it is to be exalted because God has condescended and poured out his spirit on you even now. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you're trying to answer the question, how do I have confidence when I'm the pilgrim minority in this world? Then here Peter in this, in this instruction about rejoicing, say, here's how you find joy. You realize that the spirit of God, that spirit of glory that will be revealed fully one day, rests upon you. That, that's great news, but if you've been around the Bible much and you know about being filled with the Spirit and walking in the Spirit and the Spirit indwells us, it becomes a bit mundane. So that Peter's argument here kind of falls flat at times on the church because we're like, yeah, the Holy Spirit's in us, whatever that means, Peter is saying, no, wait, no, let me, let me say it again because my point was supposed to like stir us up. We are blessed or we are hashtag blessed. Does that ring a bell maybe? Like we're the people that have the good news and, and what is it? It's that the spirit of God rests upon us. We know what's coming, glory. And we know it because we've received earnest money a deposit, a down payment in the Holy Spirit of glory. Soak up the simple sentence in verse 14. You are blessed because 
of the Spirit. That Spirit rests upon you. Like you right now are just resting on that chair. You're not trying to make sure it doesn't fall over. No, you're just there. On, that Spirit just rests on you. And you just welcome it into every part of your life. That's why elsewhere we could write, be filled with the Spirit. You know, picture yourself like some diagram and, and, and seeing it and filling right up to the top. Be filled with the Spirit so that the way we act and the way we think and the way we parent, the way we drive and the way we shop and the way we budget, the way we do everything reflects a godliness that is in us by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of glory. Blessed because the Spirit rests upon you. There is hope of finding joy in hostility because suffering leads to glory and because you have the power and the presence of God's Spirit. So how do you face hostility with confidence in God's will? Number three, be careful to identify the cause of hostility. Look at verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. So we see there are two ways in which you can endure hostility or face hostility. One of them is because you're a wretch. If you drive like a maniac, selfishly, because you have to get somewhere and cut somebody off, you may endure some hostility. So bad behavior will bring on hostility, or, verse 16, good behavior may bring on hostility. You may suffer as a Christian. Peter here is saying, if you want to have confidence in God's will in the face of hostility, then be sure you're suffering for the right reason. Check your heart and make sure that you haven't provoked hostility. Not that it would be warranted or justified, but you would be accountable for part of the problem. And so he lists some obvious grievous sins. Yes, if you murdered someone or, or stole from them, if you embezzled $100,000 from your company and faced hostility and opposition for it, it would not be because of your Christian faith your godliness, it would be because of your ungodliness. He goes on to say, generally, if you're an evildoer, then you can expect opposition. And then uniquely, and commentators throughout the years have questioned, why does he throw in this really unusual word that I believe only shows up once in the New Testament? In this form, the idea of being a meddler. You say, well, I don't work with metals, so, you know, I, I don't do any meddling and stuff, right? No, it's a unique word. It might be the idea of a busybody, a know-it-all, uh, someone kind of poking into other people's business, but it's not curiosity. The word that Peter constructs here is made up of two words. It's the word another and the word we would see elsewhere in the scriptures, episkopos, bishop. So the meddler here is this word Peter kind of invented, and it's another bishop, another overseer, another supervisor, 
another authority, but not a good one, really. Basically, it's someone who thinks they can always tell everybody what they should be doing. They think they're another authority, another supervisor, your supervisor, as a matter of fact. And they're going to tell you what movies you should watch and what standards you should have in your family, which Bible version you should read. And they're going to have an opinion about everything that affects you, and it's going to be what they think. So they've set themselves up as an authority, and they're imposing that on everyone. Well, Peter is saying somehow we as God's people who do have truth, who know God's word, have to be careful that the way we're living our lives doesn't come across as this know-it-all, judge everybody else as being wrong, and here's the reason, because I'm right and you're wrong. In essence, it's another chapter in his book on evangelism. We heard earlier, chapter 3, verse 18, that in the defense of the hope that is in us, we should do that with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. Now he's adding to that by saying, listen, likely you're probably not a murderer, probably haven't embezzled the money, may not be generally classified as an evildoer, but is there anything that looks like some know-it-all, judgmental person that might provoke hostility from unbelievers? Your manner of presenting absolute, essential truth may be offensive and thus sinful. You provoked the hostility. Quit asking God for deliverance from the persecution when It's the just reward of your own bad behavior in the way that you were going about in your arrogant Christianity. You've forgotten that you were brought out of the pit, Psalm 40. You seem to think you were entitled to that place on the rock where your feet stand. You gave up long ago saying, the Lord is my salvation, and your only testimony is, I got saved because I knew the truth, and I repented, and I did this, and I did that. Peter's saying, you might come across in such a way that you're giving the gospel, but it provokes people to hate your gospel and your God. Don't be a meddler. Make sure that the hostility you face as a Christian is because you look like Christ in not only the words and the message you present, but in the way you present it. Both are important. In the face of hostility, then, the cause must not be your sin. Rather, the cause should be your identity with Christ. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you might be insulted because you're lazy in the workplace. It has nothing to do with you being a Christian that your boss is miffed at you. You'd better start working hard. God made you for it. But if you're insulted for the name of Christ, for standing for what is right, now, now you are blessed and that spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name, Christian. In other words, Jesus is the enemy. Jesus is the offense. You're only guilty by association. That's what Jesus told us. Listen, the world hated me first. And if you're with me, the association, the world's going to hate you. So 
In answering the question, how can I be confident in God's will when facing hostility? It's to step back and remember, wait a minute, they, they don't actually hate me. And there's some logic to this because at times you were close to those people. Peter says it earlier. You used to hang out with them and do all their worldly wicked stuff. And as a person, they do kind of like you. But as a person who stands for what God has said, eventually you and your ideas are going to be hated. But my confidence comes when I step back and I realize it's not my manner. It's not the way I'm a neighbor in this community. It's not my work ethic. It's my God that they hate. Jesus said that he came to bring a sword. You say, wait a minute. I, I thought he was the Prince of Peace. Well, what he was saying was, yes, he could, he could compassionately, lovingly minister to the, the arrogant Pharisee Nicodemus or the broken woman at the well. But the fact of the matter was, for both of them, Jesus brought a sword that was going to divide and force them to choose sides in this war of light against darkness. Jesus brings a sword. Christ is the great offense. So you can face hostility with confidence when you recognize that the hostility is yours because of your allegiance to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And so you step back and say, these are the terms of war. If I live for Christ, my own family may at times ostracize, maybe poke fun at, certainly not understand. The workplace, same thing. And now as we're seeing the news media trying to prevent what they say is the prevailing view of people in our nation, are advocating again and again that their way is unity and love and such. Hope, freedom. They use all of our words for their sin. They're calling evil good and calling our good evil. The Bible told us this would happen. Peter is saying the same thing. Don't be surprised by this. Christ will be an offense. We've grown accustomed in American Christianity to that not really being evidenced much. It used to be a badge of honor when a politician could point to the church that he attended, albeit 30 years ago or something as a kid. But the religion and morality was, was a badge to be used for advantage because it was a good thing in society. And now we're seeing that balance seem to change, especially if you're standing for God's truth. But because of our allegiance to Jesus Christ, to that name Christian, we are told, number four, to speak for Christ in hostility. How can I be confident in God's will in the face of hostility? At times, the confidence will come when the words come. When you identify as a Christian. When you speak what is true. Oh, you might not have time to argue extensively God's truth against a worldview. But you could simply say in a conversation about 
gender and identity and sexuality. Listen, I, I just believe that God's created way is best. That points them to God, points them to origins, it points them to love and goodness. It's best. It might be all you have time for. But we speak for Christ in the face of hostility. Notice how Peter brings this out. He reminds us in verse 15 that we're not to suffer for being obnoxious or sinful. Yet if we suffer as Christians, he says, don't be ashamed. And it's an ongoing verb with a negative. And so in the Greek, moving into English, we stop and think, okay, this is either, hey, don't do this, or it could be stop doing this. Both are on the table for interpretation. He may be saying, don't be ashamed if this happens to you, or he may be saying, stop being ashamed for being a Christian. And it just wouldn't take much if we were honest. If we could break into some small groups and say, hey, tell us the last time where you felt like you probably should say something and didn't. If we were honest, the stories would flow. And I think Peter can identify. I think Peter was passionate here when he started saying, when you face opposition or hostility because they think you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, don't be ashamed. And he probably paused and thought back on a dark night around a campfire when some little girl simply said, hey, didn't I see you with Jesus earlier? No, not me, never, of course not. Mind your own business. One text says, another girl at a little different place. Hey, wait a minute, aren't, aren't you one of the followers of Jesus? Shut up. I'm not. Leave me alone. Get away. Kids should mind their own business. Leave. Finally, it happens again, and he starts to swear, by the gods, by Zeus, and what? No. I don't know that man. I, I, I don't care about him. And it says, immediately, the rooster crows. And one text even says, Jesus, from across the way in his, in his already tortured state, caught Peter's eye. And in that moment, Peter learned, if you suffer, if you face hostility because you are a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, do not be ashamed. This is no simple command Peter is writing. If ever the pastor feels like a hypocrite, Peter would know. Stop being ashamed of your Savior, of the good news, of the only power that can transform your life. Stop being ashamed of the hope that is in you, of an inheritance that's kept for you and you are kept for it. Don't be ashamed of Christ. But he goes on to give us the contrast to shame. Don't be ashamed, but glorify God. 
Let him not be ashamed, but, word of contrast, instead, let him glorify God in that name to embrace it. Because before he was worried about suffering hostility as a Christian, as a, as a little Christ, as a follower of Christ, as a person defined by the culture of Christ. You see, if you lived in Ephesus, you were an Ephesian. If you lived in Colossae, you were a Colossian. If you lived in Philippi, you were a Philippian. And so in Antioch, it came to some of the opponents of Christianity that that culture isn't so much like Ephesus or Galatia or Philippi or Corinth. It's, it's more like they're all about Christ. So we'll call them Christians. And the text says they were first called Christians at Antioch. This is one of the few other uses of the word in the New Testament. Peter says if you suffer because you're a part of the culture that looks a lot like Christ, then glorify God in that very name, Christ. He has made the difference. He is king. He is God's anointed. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. Speak for Christ. Don't be ashamed of Christ, but rather glorify God. Now, glorify is a word we use often. We sang it a moment ago. Glory be to God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to glorify God? Kind of in the root and probably the most helpful explanation that kind of, at least in my mind, gave it some handles to grab onto was this expression, to give the right opinion of God. So that when I treat people in the workplace, it gives the right opinion of God. If Christ were here, it's how he would do it. As I parent my kids and the neighbors see it or hear it from their yards adjoining, it would reflect Christ's likeness. It would give the right opinion of God. So when they find out I'm a Christian, that title, that name, actually looks good. It looks attractive. It explains a lot of things, a lot of good things. You've given the right opinion of God. If you went out of here and drove 80 miles an hour down the road and ran over three neighbors' cats, took out a mailbox, and they stop you at the end of the road and say, you got to slow down. You're driving like a maniac. Like, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just leaving this fine church up on the hill. We're your good neighbors at Grace Bible Church. The rest of us would say that, that doesn't give a good opinion of what we're trying to be as a church. Peter is saying, listen, when you face hostility and they're insulting you because of your faith and it may be with crude gestures and words and, and angry thoughts and words, remember, it's the name of Christ that has made all the battle really take place. Christ is the lightning rod. And so you can have some confidence knowing that I speak for Christ. I'm not going to be ashamed. I'm simply going to keep living in a way that gives the right opinion of God. I'll represent him in this very name, Christian. Well, now we come to verses 17 and 18. And clearly it's an explanation of what Peter has said so far. Don't be surprised by opposition, but find joy in it, knowing that suffering leads to glory, knowing that when you face opposition, it will be because of Christ, 
It should be, and not your own sin. So if you suffer, don't be ashamed. Glorify God. And now a, a word of explanation. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And, and your Bible may have it in quotations because now he's quoting Proverbs to support what he just said, and it sounds very similar. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? All right, so what is Peter's point here? That it's time for judgment to begin with the house of God. Well, there's a lot of ways to look at the judgment of Christians as it unfolds in the New Testament. But more importantly, and, and really first things first, would be to think, what has Peter said in this paragraph that has to do with God evaluating the church? So that Peter could say, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us now, what will be the outcome later when he exercises this judgment on all men. I don't think Peter's talking about a last judgment, although the Bible speaks of we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I don't, I don't think he's saying this is the judgment to come. I think he's saying some form of God's judgment is now on the church where Peter was living. And that judgment ultimately will come on all, even the unbeliever. And what will be their state when God's judgment is turned on them? But right now it is not. That judgment is waiting. But there is some judgment that is now for God's church. And it fits with what Peter has just said in verses 12 through 16. So what could be figured as somehow judgment, some kind of proving or testing so far in Peter's language? And it's there in verse 12. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, to evaluate you, to see what's there, to judge what is there. I think the judgment Peter is speaking of is what he began back in chapter 1 as well. We read it earlier. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says the testing is now. A determination is being made now. Judgment is now for the church of Jesus Christ. But it's not judgment as we think. You're going to be judged for your sin. No, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But it doesn't mean there isn't any determination about the, the quality of your faith or the maturity of your faith, the fullness of your Christian life as it compares to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Peter says it is time for the church to be tested. So don't think it's strange when opposition comes to test you. 
to show you where your faith needs to grow, to show you where your sinfulness needs to be confessed so that you truly are living in a way that gives the right opinion of God. That testing has begun. The garments of the bride of Christ are being ironed out even now. And one day we will be perfect and he will present us without spot or wrinkle. But can you tell me of some of the spots and wrinkles that you had on the bride's garment this week? You see, Christ is sanctifying us by his spirit this week. And Peter's whole point is, yes, you are a follower of Jesus Christ, but you're on this journey of sanctification and hostility and testing is going to help purify and prove what is there and what needs to change. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. It is, and it may be in the form of the hostility you faced this week, where God carves out some of your abrasiveness, where God shaves off some of your arrogance and your judgment, where God creates a little bit of compassion in you for people who believe some really illogical, unbiblical stuff, where God helps you to see you're a pretty fearful person. You're shying away from the campfires like Peter did. Why are you so ashamed of being a Christian? That's the judgment that is at work now. God is perfecting you. God is sanctifying you. Don't be ashamed of him. Embrace his testing. Peter seems to have borrowed thoughts from the prophets. They spoke often of God purifying his people in judgment. We hear a similar passage in Malachi 3 where God says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. He's speaking of the messenger, John the Baptist. And when you see him, know that very soon, you're going to see another messenger. And he's going to bring this message of redemption. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Malachi's point, I think, is being echoed by Peter. He's saying the refiner's fire is here. We are being purified so that we can make this righteous life of sacrifice to our God. And with the help of a quote from Proverbs, Peter restates this language of judgment in a sense saying, if the righteous are saved through so much hostility and difficulty and suffering, that's that word scarcely. Kind of sounds odd to be scarcely saved. The idea is saved through so much hostility and suffering and opposition. If we're saved, and yet we have to go through all this testing and purifying and sanctification and evaluation or judgment, 
then how do you think an unbeliever who is outside of the benefits of Jesus Christ will endure when the refiner sets the fire to their lives? His point is, you, the results are devastating. There is no standing before God apart from faith in Christ. If you are in Jesus Christ today by faith, then you can know judgment begins at the house of God. And you may face hostility this week designed to test you, to show you you are not what you should be yet in Christ. So keep growing, keep pressing on, don't be ashamed. Give the right opinion of God. But if you are not in Jesus Christ, I have nothing for you but the worst language of the English speaking world to describe the devastation of the unbeliever in the judgment day. Your mouth will be stopped and you will have no excuse and you will face certain judgment. That's Peter's point. But can you see how that point gives us confidence to face hostility? I know that I need not be ashamed of Jesus Christ and those who oppose me cannot stand before the refiner's fire. So Peter concludes by telling us we must trust God's purpose for hostility. What does he say? He says, entrust your souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Rest in God's character. He's faithful. He's the one who called you to this pilgrimage and he's promised that you'll make it all the way home. He's faithful. You'll never be disappointed. And he is the creator. Peter goes all the way back to the beginning and reminds us that everything that exists, including those who oppose us, were created by God. They are but pawns in the accomplishment of his will. So trust him. He has this under control. But faith must always be accompanied by action. And so he says, entrust your souls to him while doing good. Don't back away from the righteousness that's causing you all this grief from the world. Keep doing right. Keep witnessing to the transformational power of the gospel. You may not know exactly how God is working in your situation, but you do know this. You can do what is right. And so Peter's conclusion is ours. We should be confident in God's will. That means you trust him with everything in this life and the next, and it means that you get busy doing what is right this week. You say, but that got me in a lot of trouble in the workplace. I know. Entrust your soul and your budget and your paycheck to a faithful creator while doing good. Just keep going. You say, well, I'd like more answers than that about does this hostility end? How do I get away from it? No, just trust the faithful creator and keep doing good. Or as we learned as children, trust and obey. For there is no other way to be happy in Jesus. So hear the words from God this morning and take courage and confidence in his will, even for the hostility we face. Heavenly Father, bolster our faith by these words today. Give us confidence in your will. 
You've called us to do right. That's your will. But we tend to shy away from the hostility when it comes, the insult. Give us courage. Lord, we pray for your church around the world that suffers in your name. We pray for those who even in this past week have had to endure some some hard language in the workplace that grates against everything that is true and right. Give them courage. Give them compassion. Lord, we pray for those in our families who do not know you and do not understand our hope and our joy, our convictions, our beliefs. Would you open their eyes in your mercy to see the treasure that is Jesus. For those unsaved neighbors of ours and co-workers, may we feel this incredible sense of responsibility to be salt and light, to be that lighthouse steering them away from shipwreck into the safe harbor of Jesus Christ. Lord, by your spirit, help us to get this text right and to manifest obedience to it so that we might give the right opinion of you, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.